Dwayne Elgin, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. Uh, we were chatting and had lunch before we started. Um, we discovered that you've just turned 70, right? Indeed. And I turned 70 in a couple of months. So we're at a very interesting juncture in our lives uh, where what matters uh, is kind of up for us. Indeed. Yeah. And one of the things that matters for you is uh, this uh, astonishing proposition that you believe that the universe is alive. Indeed. And this is an idea that you've devoted many years to you. I think you said this is the first book you started and the last book you completed. Yes, it, I, I've been <laughs> working on this uh, uh, for over 32 years. Yeah. Actually. I think you said you'd written about 20,000 pages to get to these No, no, no that's exaggerating. It was oh, 10,000. Okay. 10,000. <laughs> it, it was only 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> so this remarkable book, The Living Universe, where are we, who are we, where are we going, with an introduction by Deepak Chopra. Um, and uh, Duane is also the uh, author of a very extremely well-known book, uh, Voluntary Simplicity, uh, which has a nice second edition that is uh, uh, um, enhanced. Uh, and he's also written uh, uh, Promise Ahead, and The Awakening Earth. Uh, in 2006, he received the International Goy Peace Award for his contribution to global vision, vision consciousness, and lifestyle. And uh, Dwayne, you've had a really interesting history. Uh, you have an MBA from Wharton Business School, uh, a master's in economic history from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, you worked for many years uh, for the uh, Stanford Research Institute, SRI, uh, where you did a, a whole series of uh, uh, really uh, significant pieces of work on um, anticipating future national and global problems for the president's science advisor, on alternative futures for environmental policy for the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, on the limits to the management of large complex systems for the president's science advisor. So you're not your average flake talking about a living universe. Uh, you've uh, given some thought to this in a rather rigorous way. <laughs> and um, and I, I love this book, uh, and I have a a deep sympathy for the thesis that we live in a living universe. And I said to you over lunch that precisely because of that, I wanted to examine the thesis with you with some rigor, because it matters. Indeed. And he, although I'm drawn to it, um, I want to really explore uh, this. And, and uh, I mentioned to you an extraordinary book that I've been reading um, by, uh, uh, by Jim Holt, called Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story. Mm -hmm. And Holt is a longtime contributor to The New Yorker. Uh, and he went around the world uh, asking people, why is there something instead of nothing? And he visited this astonishing group of people, um, I won't read it, but leading physicists, mathematicians, um, 
Richard Swinburne, David Deutsch, uh, Steven Weinberg, Roger Penrose, John Leslie, Derek Parfit, and the late John Updike, asking them all why the world exists. Why is there something instead of nothing? Uh, and he got this great variety of views from leading physicists, mathematicians, speculative cosmologists at Oxford and elsewhere. Um, and they don't all agree with you. Uh, and uh, so uh, I asked you over lunch, why should we privilege something that you and I are drawn to, which is the idea that it's a living universe over all these other very thoughtful perspectives? And you said you thought that it should be privileged. Indeed. So why should it be privileged? Yeah. Um, I think, um, uh, first of all, I want to uh, acknowledge this isn't a new perspective. Um, either Plotinus or Plato more than 2,000 years ago said the universe is a single living creature that encompasses all living creatures within it. So this is an old uh, perspective. Um, in American Indian lore, they speak of three miracles. Uh, the first miracle is that anything exists at all. Mm -hmm. The second miracle is that living things exist, plants and animals. And the third miracle is that living things exist that know they exist. Now, we tend to focus on the thir third miracle because that's us. We're living things that know we exist, and we tend to forget, then, the first miracle that there's anything here at all. Now, that doesn't answer the question. It just says it's a miracle and it's a mystery, basically. Um, so, why does anything exist at all? is the key question. And um, I think the answer to that can be found not so much philosophically, but in the architecture of the universe. If we just look at the architecture of the universe, we're going to find answers to that question. What is the universe doing? And at every scale of the universe, there is a signature that we see. And it's, it's called a toroidal system. It looks like a donut uh, in, in shape. And a torus uh, is what it's called, but a tornado has that same kind of shape. But at every scale in the universe, we see the universe creating the same architecture, whether it's the atomic structure, the human structure, the gal galactic structure. And it's the structure of self-organizing systems. So if we say, well, what is the universe doing? Well, it's very busy creating self-organizing systems at every scale. Now, for something to organize itself, it has to be able to reflect upon itself. So immediately it says there must be some consciousness in the universe. Now, let me stop you right there. For something to organize itself, it must, must be, be able, able to reflect, to reflect on upon itself. itself. Why should we assume that is true? Okay, what do you mean by self-organization? Well, in other words, I can imagine, um, let, for example, take a magnet and steel filings, all right? And you put a, a magnet together, it creates a pattern of steel mm -hmm. filing. But that wasn't necessarily a self-reflective form of organization. Right? Or not? Well... I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Do, do, do the arrangement of the filings reflect in some uh, patterned way the magnetic structure of the field? Indeed, they do. Uh, but did it require self-reflection for that 
It is, I would suggest it's a, it's a form of reflection on uh, an expression of the magnetic field itself. That is actually not what I'm speaking about, but okay. I had never thought of it quite in okay. that way. Okay. Um, so we'll just put a parenthesis. We'll put a parenthesis. So the, the idea that. is that for this uh, shape to emerge and continue to emerge, it yeah. must have a reflective quality. It implies that, that there must be a reflective capacity if it's going to be self-organizing. Now, just let me stick with this for a minute. So if you ask contemporary cosmologists interested in, say, chaos theory, something like that, uh, in chaos theory you have patterns that emerge, but I doubt that the chaos theorists believe that it requires a, a consciousness or a reflective capacity. So I keep coming back to yeah. that. Let, let's Should we put a parenthesis there? Put a parenthesis okay. there because I think we need to go to okay, a good. deeper good, level good, good. Uh, than that, good. even. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, is the universe itself a living system? Mm-hmm. And uh, first of all, it's important to know that there is no agreed upon definition of what is life, what is alive. Right. Um, it absolutely does not exist. So what I did was look through an immense amount of literature, and I came up with five key attributes mm-hmm. of a living system. Right. And I said, if the universe is alive, it better satisfy this rigorous set of five key attributes. Mm-hmm. And um, no you know, mysticism involved. This is hard science. And the first attribute is it better be a unified whole, because if it's a bunch of fragments... It's not a living whole. Mm-hmm. And what we've recently found now through non-locality and such is that indeed uh, the universe is at a deep level a unified whole through non-locality. So that would be one uh, satisfied requirement. The second is that it must have energy moving through it. If it's alive, it must have energy just flowing through it. And now what science knows is that there is immense amounts of of energy flowing through the universe at every moment, uh, such that a cubic centimeter of empty space contains millions of atomic bombs worth of energy flowing through it. Thirdly, If it's alive, it must be sentient, it must be conscious in some particular uh, way, uh, in a way that really fits uh, the nature of its functioning. And that is what we're finding, uh, both in the plant realm as well as the animal realm. As we go down, the further and further we look, we find evidence of sentience, of a reflective consciousness. Uh, Both in the plant realm as well as in the animal realm, uh, there's sentience uh, all the way down. That's... um, and that's one of the new discoveries of science. Science is becoming so powerful that it's undoing its assumptions that consciousness isn't there. So that's another uh, key assumption, that there is uh, sentience. Uh, a fourth is that uh, a living system has the ability to reproduce itself. Now, uh, cosmologists are saying, well, every black hole is probably on the other side of that a white hole. And uh, we're budding off a tremendous, perhaps un counted number of other universes in a multiverse kind of perspective uh, because at the center of every galactic structure is a black hole and that's a vehicle into a white hole in another universe. So that is satisfied. So then the last requirement is freedom. If if something is alive, it better have freedom. And uh, if you go into quantum theory, the foundations of quantum theory is freedom. If there's one thing about quantum fields, it's that it's fuzzy with freedom. Mm 
So if you start adding those up and you say, well, is it unified? Yes. Does it have sentience throughout? Yes. Does it have energy flowing through it? Yes. Does it have the ability to reproduce itself? Yes. Does it have um, uh, all of these attributes as, as a unified whole? Indeed, I think it does. And to me, that suggests alive. It points in the direction of it. It doesn't prove alive. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. But if someone wants to say it's not alive, let's unpack that. Show me that it's not a unified whole. Show me that it doesn't have sentience and on and on. And, and when I listen to that list, because again, as I say, I'm deeply sympathetic to this. So as I listen to that list, the two, uh, the, the, the particular... Of, of that list, the key one that I would look most closely at is sentience. Because I can imagine something that wasn't alive, that was unified. I can imagine that it might have a huge amount of energy flowing through it. I can imagine that it might even reproduce itself. But that it is sentient. If it is sentient, that implies the reflective capacity. Indeed it does. And it seems to me that 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 might be the place, again, to put an asterisk that we might come back to, because that is a quality of aliveness that somehow seems to me uh, of, of special importance in that list. Okay. Okay. So where would you go Good. on from there in your demonstration of the aliveness of the universe? Well, um, there's the scientific side. Uh, of that inquiry to say through the lens of hard science forget any kind of philosophical speculation let's just look at the science and see if that fits mm -hmm. and in fact indeed I think it does mm -hmm. the other side is to say well let's look at the world's uh, interior sciences the wisdom traditions mm -hmm. of the world and what do they say <clears throat> about the universe and uh, there's a fair amount that we know about how the wisdom traditions view compassion and love and uh, there's a great deal of agreement about that. But when I turn to, to ask, how do the uh, wisdom traditions regard the universe, there were, you know, no one had really been looking at that. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much unknown. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And what I found uh, is that there is tremendous agreement across the world's wisdom traditions that the universe is a regenerative system, mm -hmm. that it is being recreated moment by moment by moment. And every single spiritual tradition, wisdom tradition, has this within it. And if you go, for example, uh, into Islam, Islam talks about uh, one point of view is called occasionalism. And Islam says, well, uh, a moment from now, this book that I'm holding will not be the same book uh, that it was. It will be the new occasion of that book. And actually, not only will it be the new occasion of that book, that will be a new occasion of the entire universe that holds that book. This is Ibn Arabi. Yes, Ibn Arabi. The great Sufi yes. mystic and Indeed, yes, thank you. Uh, so that's out of Islam. Mm -hmm. If you go into the Buddhist traditions, mm -hmm. again and again, they'll say, uh, my solemn proclamation is a new universe is created at every moment out of the Zen tradition. Right. And uh, I can give you endless quotes and out of Buddhism. And that's the spontaneous co-arising. The co-arising of the universe. Taoism. Right. It, what do they say? The Tao, the mother of the universe, gives rise spontaneously to, to all of creation moment by moment by moment. 
Um, Jesus, in the Gospel of Thomas, was talking to his disciples. He said, what, what would we say to people when they asked where we came from? And Jesus said something that Einstein would have loved. Yes. He said, if they asked where we came, came from, tell them, we came from the light. Right. The place for light came into being of its own accord and established itself. I love that. Tell them you are children of the light. Yes. I love okay, that. well, it's happening. We're, doing, it's, we're creating at the speed of light. Right. It's, it's happening. So every wisdom tradition, uh, right. indigenous cultures, uh, I mean, we just go through them all. They all have their own languaging of it, right. but they're saying the universe isn't just sitting here as a static structure. It's a regenerative system, and it's happening moment by moment by moment. Right. And the Buddha was saying, essentially, look, um, if the... If, if the universe is happening at a frame rate of, let's say, 100 frames per second, and we're watching at the frame rate of 10 frames a second, uh, we're not going to notice this happening. But if we meditate and bring the precision of our attention up to the precision of manifestation of, of a regenerative universe, a, a magic begins to emerge when we find ourselves transparent to the wholeness of a regenerative living system. And that's where then uh, people speak of the aliveness of the universe comes from. It comes from their direct experience. And so uh, let's look at direct experience. Um, let's, that's a trustable source uh, that we can turn to. In 1962, uh, 22% of the, of the adult population had had a mystical experience where they had felt a connection with a living universe, if you will. 22% in 1962. And if we move ahead a half a century, that 22% has grown to 49% in 2009. And we are now more a nation of mystics, I would maintain, than a nation of materialists, but no one knows it because no one's talking about it. And um, one of my reasons for writing The Living Universe is to say it is alive. Uh, and this is old knowledge that's being recovered, reclaimed uh, by new science. Um, and this is exciting uh, because then it brings us together with the world's wisdom traditions and we then have insight for the future. Where are we going? Where are we going? We're, we're creating self-organizing systems. That means we as individuals, how do I pull myself together? How is this as a society? How do we self-organize? How do we become conscious as a society at a, at a collective level and so on? So there are all kinds of insights that just come out of that, uh, that come out of that. I love this. And I, I again, I'm deeply sympathetic <laughs> to it. So. Um, there are two uh, pieces of, of evidence that you... I don't think you mentioned in the book. You may have mentioned one of them. But, but I was interested that you didn't. Um, one, the one I'm not sure whether you mentioned or not, is the anthropic principle. Uh, and the anthropic principle, as you know well, is that physicists discovered to their astonishment that if the universe had been tweaked one way or another, it wouldn't have supported life. And it could have been in many different ways. Right. But it turned out that the universe is ideally suited to support life. And this has been a source of enormous consternation to Stephen Hawking and many others who assume with 99% of current cosmologists that of course the universe is dead. And so they've spun this elaborate system, which you agree with, of the multiverse, that there are 
thousands, if not billions, of, of uh, universes, and in fact, that the only reason that the universe is, uh, has the anthropic principle is it's a pure random fluke of chance. That is to say, if you create billions of universes, some of them by pure random chance are going to have the anthropic principle and create life. Well, I find that, I mean, on the one hand, I can accept with you the theory of the multiverse and all the different universes, but the only universe that physicists and cosmologists have actually been able to demonstrate with any certainty at all is the existing universe. And the existing universe is designed to support life. And, and the rejection of that theory has required the development of you know, this multiverse theory. So one point for me is, suppose there aren't all these other universes. Suppose the existing universe, what you see is what you get. In that case, you really do have to take seriously why is it designed to support life. And that, to yep. me, would be a potentially very strong yep. uh, argument that this is a living universe. A yep. second one, which I mentioned to you, and I remembered uh, the name of it, is a theory called panspermia. And panspermia is the theory that all these asteroids carry the building blocks of life and they wander around in space until they find a fertile plant, they drop in, and lo and behold, life emerges. Um, and uh, that is qu increasingly well demonstrated. There, piece after piece of evidence grows that many of the asteroids do uh, contain the building right. blocks of life and that when they find a fertile planet, life emerges. Well, again, that suggests a, rather than arising, you know, just on Earth and being unique or whatever, or very rare. In fact, as with the anthropic principle, these are two pieces of evidence that have intrigued me. And I just wondered, had you thought of either of these as you constructed your arguments for a living universe? Uh, yes, and I have a somewhat different yeah. reply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, first of all, um, let's say there are no other universes. Right. What's the function of the, this universe? Well, we know just from its architecture that it's creating self-organizing systems. Right. So, we could say, well, at a minimum, uh, what you're supposed to be doing here is becoming more self-organizing. Mm -hmm. And actually, mm -hmm. the whole human potential movement and mm -hmm. da -da -da, all that's happening here is really a reflection of that. We're really uh, fulfilling the potential of a self-organizing universe. So this is Thomas Berry and Teilhard yeah. de Chardin. Totally. So, yeah. Yeah. We're just we're fulfilling it. Right. Um, uh, now... Uh, uh, at the same time, we're still in our adolescent phase, and uh, if you look at the West and say, well, what are we doing here? A lot of people in the West say, well, look, we're here to pleasure ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're here to be happy. We're here to uh, uh, buy a bunch of stuff and have a good time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what life is about, it's pleasuring. And you go to the East and they say, no, it's suffering. Uh, you know, there's it's a lot of suffering here, and uh, this is the place to uh, leave, transcend, get out of here. Mm -hmm. So we've got these, in some ways, two paradigms, this is simplistic, but two paradigms, a paradigm of pleasuring, a paradigm of suffering. And I say, let's put those paradigms together, and we have a third, and it's a paradigm of learning. Mm. Sometimes you suffer, 
sometimes you're pleasuring, but all the time you're learning. And I think what this is, is a learning system. This is a learning system in a context of profound, of profound freedom. And uh, if we say, look, I don't want to learn how to be self-organizing and re- reflective and conscious and all the rest. No problem. Hey, take a billion years. Take another billion. No problem. Uh, take as much time as you want. Uh, you're free. You can create it any way you want. Um, so I think this is a learning system. And what we're learning is how to get a hold of ourselves. What is self-organization? It's getting a hold of yourself. Now, what happens if we don't get a hold of ourselves while we're here? Well, in a material body, uh, when we get a hold of ourselves, we know ourselves and others are persistent knowing. But if we don't have a body, we don't have the persistent structure to remind ourselves. So this is a very congenial environment for the really primitive level of uh, development. Look, we're only two steps above a black hole. A black hole is one dimension. If we're in the third or fourth dimension, we're just a couple of steps above the collapse of reality into a black hole. We're just barely getting started. Physicists say this is a universe of infinite dimensionality, openness. We're, we're in the third or fourth dimension. We're just in the third or fourth grade, and we think we've done it all. We're just barely getting started. And so I think the function of this universe is for us to learn who we are to get a hold of ourselves. And once we get a hold of ourselves in this very basic material form, um, then we have the capacity to move into other ecologies, other realms, other multiverses that are more ephemeral, more freedom, more open, and do other kinds of learning. But first of all, we have to get a hold of ourselves here Hmm. and and this really primitive kind of world that we're, we're living in. And so I think this is just the very beginning of a long, long process. You have a a lovely chapter toward the end of the book where you talk about um, it's uh, you talk about uh, different paradigms of the human journey. Humanity is halfway home. It starts. By the way, I wanted I was saying to you earlier. You have these wonderful quotes. Here's the start of the humanity is halfway home is uh, Father Giovanni in 1513. We are pilgrims together, wending through unknown country toward home, you know. And then uh, the other one, which I love, is uh, uh, take courage, the human race is divine, from Pythagoras. From Pythagoras, So anyway, going back to humanity is halfway home. Uh, You talk about uh, three images of... uh, our collective journey of awakening. Could you talk about those three images? Starting with the heroic journey and then humanity's journey of uh, separation. Do I have this right? Maybe I don't. Is it three images? Let me just look. You say to explore our journey of collective awakening. Oh no, I'm sorry, it's just one. Uh, let's use the powerful lens of the fundamental archetype, the hero's journey. No, there are three there. There are three, okay. This good. goes into the work on great transition stories yeah. that I've been doing over the last three or four years. Yeah. And um, 
Well, yeah, here's what I found, and, and I've done futures research now for about 40 years, and mm-hmm. I go out and I talk to people, how do you see the future? Yeah. And what I find is people have this just despairing view of, of things. Uh, often I get these three-word replies, well, we're going to hit the wall, we're going to go in the ditch, we're going to go over the cliff, and I'll... Golly, what a what a dispirited view of things. We can do better than that. So, um, what I've been doing, um, I you know, I wrote this book with uh, co-authored with Joseph Campbell about forty years ago on changing images of man. And the idea is, what is the image that we can hold of ourselves in the future? Not not the intellectual details, but rather the image, because that draws out a different part of ourselves. And so uh, Campbell talked about, uh, he wrote the book, The Hero's Journey, and he said, well, we're on this heroic uh, journey, uh, and his description of the hero's journey actually is very complex. It has sometimes 11, sometimes 13 stages, and uh, I like to boil it down from those to three stages, uh, separation, initiation, and return. And basically, I feel looking at uh, life from Campbell's perspective that we've been on a uh, 35 to 50,000 year journey of separation. That's all we know, separation. We've just been pulling back from one another tribally, pulling back from one another as agrarian civilizations and city-states, pulling back from one another as nation-states. Uh, so that's all we know is separation. And now we've come to a place, well, the, 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 the world is whole. There's no frontiers left. It's a closed circle. We can't escape. We have to live with one another. So uh, all of a sudden, there's no more separation. And now it's the time in Campbell's term of that supreme test. We have to stand beyond the ego of nation-state politics and all the rest and find a higher level of common humanity. And that's what's going on right now. And if a living universe is something that we all share together, well, then that is really, really important as a foundation to build from for a new uh, future. So, um, and indeed, uh, the hero's journey uh, to Campbell, that great turn that he was speaking about beyond uh, the supreme test is moving into the grace of a living universe, into the adulthood of that new relationship uh, with the universe. And um, the other uh, stories of great transition include, um, for example, um, the global brain is waking up. And um, I'll, I'll say to, I'll ask people, do you, do you think the global brain is, is waking up? And they'll pick up their cell phone and you say, you mean this? And I'll say, yeah. Um, and they'll say, you mean uh, the Occupy movement, uh, the Arab Spring movement? I'll say, yeah. And all I have to do is say the global brain is waking up and people will start telling me the story. Mm-hmm. Or I say, uh, uh, humanity is just growing up. And um, we're in our adolescence trying to work into our adulthood, and people will just start telling me stories about, well, what that means, Um, how we are behaving like adolescents right now, and how wonderful and powerful it would be if we could move into our early adulthood. Isn't there actually, maybe I just heard you say this, but is there actually poll data of people in different countries Mm. saying that we're in our adolescence as a... Species? Yes. No, I was telling you. I was oh, mentioning yeah. that I've now gone around the world um, for nearly 20 years mm-hmm. asking people, uh, for example, school teachers in India, um, mm-hmm. 
What is their view of the life stage of the human family? Are we acting like toddlers, teenagers, adults, elders? Overwhelmingly, they said, well, we're in our teenage years. Uh, I've asked a thousand, a room full of uh, nearly 6,000 green builders. What do you think? These are engineers, mostly guys, kind of engineers. And, well, what do you think? Um, and I said, I, don't, I want you to not only raise your hand, I want you to stand up for your point of view. And I said, well, how many would you stand up for your point of view that we're in our toddler stage? And then there was a sprinkling of maybe uh, mm. a few hundred people stood up. Mm. Then I said, well, how many would take a stand that we're in our teenage stage? And with that, well over 2,000, I don't know, the, the majority of people stood up. And I hadn't said a word. I hadn't started my talk. I said, you don't need to remember a thing other than what you took a stand for right now. Mm. And it's that we're in our adolescence as a species. So I can, I can buy this. I mean, yeah. it, I, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense to me. I was taking a walk this morning with a colleague of mine, Ted Shetler, an extraordinary physician and environmental health scientist. And he and I share a deep interest in what we call in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is one of our networks of four or 5,000 scientists and health professionals and others around the world, the ecological paradigm of health or complexity theory. And, um, and part of complexity theory, which is a lot like what we're talking about, uh, is recognizing that when you look at the different health endpoints that all the chronic and degenerative illnesses of our time, uh, that you can no longer trace them to single factors, you know, a bacterium or whatever. And so we're living in an age where this adolescence, but what have we created, right? Climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, invasive species, and then the new threats of biotechnology, nanotechnology, robotics, electromagnetic fields, and so on and so forth. And so I was reflecting, there was a great book written by the French Catholic philosopher Jacques Ellul in the 50s or 60s called La Technique, and where he talked about the inexorable movement of technology forward and how we could only transform that by the most profound return to, in his case, Christian principles. Um, and and so I love the idea that we're in our adolescence. I, it feels true to me. But when I look at the totality, it's not just climate change, you know? It's not just climate change and toxic chemicals, you know? You know, synthetic biology, uh, genetically modified organisms, all these new technologies all of them moving on once. You know, government paralyzed to do anything. Industry completely disincentivized to do anything. And so when I look at all the beautiful new transition stories, which I love and, you know, I sympathize with, but I wonder whether we're like children telling ourselves fairy tales in the dark and that, in fact, yeah. we just can't reverse this thing. And I just wonder, why do you believe because you're a very sophisticated guy. Why do you believe that these little stories that we're telling ourselves actually have the power to take this global system of self-destruction and turn yeah. it around? Ah, good question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's stand back from the stories. Right. 
Uh, and let's look underneath the stories themselves. Mm. And to see, because if those stories aren't pointing to something true, well then forget it. Right. Because it's not going to work. Um, it has to be pointing to something uh, deeply true about the nature and structure of the universe. And so I, I have to get into uh, more of the physics, if you will. Yeah, yeah, good. There. And, um, and, and to me, that gets into the dimensional nature of the universe. And um, the universe, uh, we, as we have grown in our understanding, uh, for example, a hundred years ago, Einstein thought the universe was a static system. He didn't think it was evolving. And our sense of the universe is now, not only uh, is it an evolving system, but it's a regenerative system, is now an emergent understanding. And uh, to me, that takes us then down into the deep structures of the universe. And when we get down into the deep structures, when we go beyond the relativistic physics of four dimensions and we start into the, the new physics that's emerging now in many different areas, and you were bringing this up, what we're seeing is a holographic physics, a holodynamic physics, a physics that holds the entire universe as a, as a uh, non-local whole. And at that point, we start entering the realm of totality, if you will. And we start entering the realm of maturity. Because uh, the mature steward of uh, the home, uh, the region, the earth, and so on, has a sense and appreciation for the totality. In the indigenous cultures, for heaven's sakes, that was one of the most key aspects, was to have a direct sensibility and appreciation for the totality. So this is an old sensibility that I think is emerging in a new way at a very critical time in human evolution as a collective understanding. When it's existed in a very partial way around the world, now it's coming together as a collective understanding with the power of science and the democratization of the wisdom traditions together to say, yes, it is alive at the foundations and it is going somewhere. Now think if it's not alive, if it's a dead universe, it doesn't tell any stories. Doesn't mean anything if it's dead. Uh, we don't mean anything, but if, if it's alive, it is a grand story, and every one of us is a contributor to that grand story of its larger aliveness. And I think that's what's going on. It's a learning system, it's learning in its aliveness, and we're learning how to contribute and relate to that aliveness. You know, I know uh, we did a conversation here with a wonderful physicist named Tom Nash about Stephen Hawking's book, The Grand Design. Yeah. And I think that many of the physicists and sort of materially oriented people I know would say to you, I do not have to believe the universe is alive to see awesome, astonishing beauty in the physics of the universe. I, I can be astonished by what can be demonstrated. I don't need a living universe story to see exquisite beauty in the universe. Yeah. So I'm not sure that I would agree that we can't tell a beautiful story about a non-living universe. I like the living universe story, but I want to acknowledge the people who... I don't want to diss the people who are yeah. materialists about this. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I like the concept transcend and include. Let's right. include the scientific right. materialists. Right. But let's say there's something deeper. Yeah, we now know that 96% of the known universe is invisible. Right. Dark matter, dark energy, we can't see it, it's not there. 96%. This is the 4%. And so if we want to be materialists, well, we're dealing with 4%. Right. And we're saying 96%, well, I just don't know about it. Right. Uh, so uh, I'm saying let's, let's deal with the totality right. here. Right. And uh, if 96% is invisible, how much is you is right. out there in that right. invisible uh, space? And what's that invisible part doing anyway? <laughs> now, you, you, you do mention in this book and uh, your important years at the Stanford Research Institute, and particularly your years working with Targan Putov on, uh, uh, on various forms of... Uh, extrasensory uh, perception or experience. Um, and that actually plays an important role in your understanding of how the universe works. Could you talk about that? Uh, yes. This is something I usually don't speak about, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, I just turned 70. So and, you get to say what you want. It's, uh, it's like, <laughs> if not now, when? Yeah, if not now, when? Uh, so uh, roughly 40 years ago, when I was doing this work with uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, looking at uh, co-authoring this book, Changing Images of Man, at the same time, uh, for a period of roughly three years, uh, at the Stanford Research Institute, um, they were beginning work in parapsychology and what they call remote viewing. Mm -hmm. And they had four subjects that they were working with uh, for the first three years uh, until it went s secret with the CIA and I dropped out. Uh, but they had four subjects and I was one of those four in the first uh, three I years. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I, I knew about their work. I knew about the remote viewing work. <laughs> I didn't know you were one of the four subjects. The plot thickens. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, wow. The plot gets thicker in that I was the only one of the four that actually worked on the premises. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the... Um, uh, in addition, courage, yeah. courage. The human race is divine. <laughs> courage. Okay. In addition to the published research, there was a number of experiments done off the books, mm -hmm. off the record, mm -hmm. and these were experiments in psychokinesis. Mm -hmm. And so th these, I had really almost three years as a part-time paid psychic by NASA. Mm -hmm. uh, to go over to the engineering labs mm -hmm. and to sit for hours at a time and to work with some of the most sensitive apparatus on the planet to explore the ecology of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I found, uh, it, it would take a, a while to describe, but uh, I found a key insight that's really uh, fundamental to physics. In physics, they say for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So here I am, a good white male, and I say, there's the apparatus over there. Here I am here. What I need to do is mobilize my energy here and push on it over there. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, the more I would push, the more the universe would push back. And instead of connection, I was getting existential separation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, domination doesn't work. Domination creates separation. Um, it took me months to learn that. So then, instead of uh, trying to dominate, then I was beginning to meditate and say, well, let's just kind of do this together. And uh, I was working with the uh, Tibetan Buddhist meditation at the time, 
And what I gradually learned, essentially, was that domination doesn't work, but dancing does. Dancing does. And, for example, if you go push on someone, they're probably just going to push you back. But if you walk up and you say, hey, let's dance, they'll say, oh, okay. Uh, now, you've got to be willing to move at the same time they're moving. Now, that's the secret. Uh, that uh, I had to be able to participate in the dynamic uh, exchange that we call psychokinesis. And it isn't mind over nature, it's mind participating in the manifestation, the arising of nature. And just to go back to the remote viewing for a moment, I remember that the first time I heard about remote viewing was from Brendan O'Regan, who was the vice president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, one of the truly astonishing contributors to the history of yeah. consciousness of our time. And actually, I was on Hawaii with uh, uh, my uh, wife at that time and uh, a friend of Brendan's named Jane Lehman. We were on the north side of Hawaii. And he began to tell me about the remote viewing stuff. And, and uh, he told me about the studies uh, done at SRI where, I think they were at SRI, but the guy who was working with the military and was able to see a Soviet submarine that was being designed under a building and a trench that they were going to build or were building to take the sub out to sea, the new generation. He was able to see this, the remote viewing. Um, and he gave me other examples of this. But then he told me something that actually made me feel nauseous because it so contradicted my worldview. He told me that in some of these experiments that people were able to see uh, the stimulus event before it took place. That they were able, and that there'd been a whole series of these uh, studies where the the subject who was doing the viewing actually saw what was happening before it was presented. And in some instances, these were done, as you know, with random generating machines. Right. So that the person, and in some of the instances, I know later research, because the heart responds faster physiologically than consciousness does, and where there was a choice between a terrible scene and a relaxing scene, uh, the heart would be stimulated before the image of a terrible scene was shown because somehow, and I felt this sense of um, nausea um, of my world shifting in a way that I was completely unprepared for. Yes. Um, so, but having said that, you know, there's a, there's still among some very sophisticated colleagues of ours working with uh, the Fetzer Institute still, there, there are questions about this research. Um, so that in my need to be careful, um, uh, and we could go way down in the weeds on this, but in my need to be careful, um, I have to hold this evidence as extraordinarily interesting and promising, but still with some degree of care. So, 
I wonder what your sense of that evidence is now. Yeah. Uh, well, I've grown more and more skeptical over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm less of a believer, if you will, over mm -hmm. the years. I have seen numerous people go through the laboratory that were presumably world-class psychics, mm -hmm. and I could just see the utter humanity of every person mm -hmm. that came through. Mm -hmm. um, we're all psychics. That's the way the mm -hmm. universe is wired. We're just wired into a living universe. Mm -hmm. It's nothing... I mean, if we're separate, mm -hmm. well, then that's amazing that we can have that kind of connection. But if it's already unified, if it's already non-locally alive, well, then psych, so-called psychic intuition is just learning a literacy of consciousness that we already have. Now, you actually talk about three phases of human consciousness that reflects this in some ways, don't you? It, well, I do. Here's one thing I want to say, though, in yeah. response to, okay, let me, yeah. uh, um, to what you were just saying, though. Mm -hmm. um, you said you had this feeling of nausea, that it was just turning your world around when mm -hmm. precognitive uh, capacities right. Right. Were, were demonstrated. Mm -hmm. Now, that presumes a, a particular nature of time that is yes. now being challenged. It is. And, and the, the presumption is time, there's a past, the present, and a future. Mm -hmm. And we're going from that past and into a present and then forward into a future. Mm -hmm. There's another way of looking at reality, and it actually just turns it 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And it's to say it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's happening is transformations in place. This is the star shape. Yeah. It's, just, it's not going from here to there. It's like moment by moment, it's all being transformed in place. Mm -hmm. So it's not going anywhere. It's just transforming in place. Now, Part of that place is the past. The past is a part of the, uh, of the upward blossoming. The past is there, the past mm -hmm. is blossoming. And uh, the future is a part of that uh, emergent um, blossoming. Mm -hmm. And all the causes and conditions of that future are already present in the mm -hmm. blossoming that's happening right now in the moment. Mm -hmm. So the future is not out there somewhere. The future is right here in the emergent dynamics of, an, of a co-arising universe. So... Not only can you have some hints, some uh, accurate information about precognitively what is emerging, it isn't 100% because it's only the causes and conditions leading to that, uh, but it is a different experience of time from past, present, to future going somewhere to transformations in place. Mm -hmm. And with past and future and present all embedded in the now. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? Beautiful. And so you, it is a, a shift in, uh, literally a shift mm -hmm. in perspective. Well, my nausea was overcome, and it became part of my question in a positive sense. Um, and for a long time, I believed that it was simply true that, you know, time ran both ways and that... Uh, and I still hold it as potentially true, but I am following some of the leading researchers in psi phenomena who are questioning the quality of the evidence. And actually, in a very interesting way, I'll just take a moment on this. What they say, uh, I'm not going to say their names because they're sensitive about this, but what they say is that when the signal is very, very weak, it requires very careful proof. And what is normally done in psi research is that you have the intervention group and the control group. 
but in fact, if you run a second control, it turns out that the second control may vary from the first control by just about the same amount that the intervention group varies from the control group. And therefore, that a lot of what is called signal of you know the intervention, in fact, is structurally a part of what happens, uh, you know, just in sort of the variance between the right. two controls. Right. And 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 therefore, um, some of the new research that's being sponsored requires the two controls in order to sort out the signal that you know. Great. So those 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 questions about the very nature of the research that's been demonstrating psi phenomena are important. But I don't see how that overcomes the remote viewing stuff where the guy could see the submarine being, you know, designed. I mean, that, that seems to me to be authentic evidence. And, and that's so fascinating. So, so you were one of the four people at SRI. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And you got out as it went underground with the Defense Department. Uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, we learned that uh, it continued on for more than 20 years mm -hmm. with the CIA. And it was one of the longest running uh, research programs the CIA had ever undertaken. Do we know whether it's still being done or not? Uh, well, they, they said no. Mm -hmm. They said no, it wasn't. But if you've got a, a program that goes for 20 mm -hmm. years... Yeah, right. There's something that has to be yeah, happening to um, yeah. validate, legitimate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. funding for something that would be that controversial. Mm -hmm. And my guess is, yeah, there's, mm -hmm. it's happening. It's so fascinating, the nature of scientific belief systems, right? Because let's assume for a moment that, that remote viewing is real, that, you know... Uh, uh, that these different forms, uh, psychokinesis, you know, uh, these different forms of uh, uh, extraordinary human capacity are real. Um, if they're real, it changes everything. Oh, yeah. It changes everything. And yet there's this tremendous resistance, you know. And I think part of it is just institutional, but part of it is we're so embedded in a materialist science right. that the idea that there are, in fact these forms of, um, uh, of communion and communication throughout the universe astonishes it, it is. And I, I think one of the most important things I learned was the extent to which I could intellectually accept that, but not experientially. Mm -hmm. I could sit there all day long, intellectually, yeah, it's mm -hmm. a unified universe, mm -hmm. and the perennial wisdom says it is, and mm -hmm. it's all connected, unified. But put me in the laboratory, mm -hmm. and uh, with the apparatus on the other side, and this and that, and I'm feeling separation. I'm feeling I'm here, it's there, and I gotta... Mm -hmm. And so, um, for me... To overcome my sense of separation, my sense of disconnect, uh, it took years. I, I was my own worst critic. Uh, I was the last person to believe this actually uh, was true. Actually, uh, I thought, golly, he wasn't that lucky. He wasn't that uh, uh, fortunate. Or how in the world did that happen? Uh, and it wasn't that I was a believer going into that. I was a skeptic. And it took years for me to essentially to overcome my own 
deep skepticism, which because it matters. I mean, if I am not just my body, what am I? Who is it that says skepticism is the chastity of the intellect? The ch- <laughs> <laughs> if if I if my body is just this biodegradable vehicle, well then what is it learning? What is that vehicle here for? What is it learning as it's here? Uh, well, you go to physics, and physics says, well, uh, you're a body of light. Well, so does the wisdom traditions get enlightened. Uh, well, you're a body of love. Uh, that's that body of knowing. Uh, you're a body of music. String theory in physics says the whole thing is resonance. Uh, well, that's what the wisdom traditions say. Um, uh, you're a body of knowing. Um, the intelligence of a, of a living universe is flowing through us at every moment. We have access to that knowing, that wisdom, that intelligence. So let's talk about those three kinds of consciousness. Yeah. Here. Okay. Um, so here we are as a society. D- different people are in different places, but as a society, we're really into thinking consciousness. And we're really, uh, currently, we're into our bodies. We're currently into being brain-based. We say, you know, I think, therefore I am. My thinking happens inside my brain. I'm really my body. And so that is the predominant kind of worldview right now. Now, you put someone like me into that uh, laboratory setting, and I find out I'm not just my body. That the consciousness can extend indefinitely. I mean, I can be five miles away from the laboratory and, and still do the interactions. It doesn't matter. Remote viewing, people can be far away and you can still see them and what's happening around them. So, um, uh, the next stage beyond thinking consciousness is to recognize, well, consciousness isn't something the brain manufactures. It's something that's present throughout the ecology of the universe. It's just there. And uh, we can interact with the ecology that is there. And then we move from a thinking consciousness inside of our brains to a more of a reflective consciousness that is drawing upon the consciousness that's a part of the, uh, the larger universe. Mm-hmm. And we begin to reflect upon ourselves and we see ourselves. And simply the process of reflection is an inherently healing. Um, and both psychotherapy says that, meditation says that. Just watch. Just watch. It will be healing. You're going to come to congruence with yourself. You're going to come into self-alignment. You're going to come to self-appreciation. Just watch. Now, after a while, the watcher and the watch come together, and there is that just place of knowing, knowing, knowing. And then we go from a watcher and watched into a place of oceanic knowing. Oh, I'm a part of the totality. I just, I just feel the wholeness of it all. And those, that's the mystical experience. There's no boundary between myself and the totality. And then, with careful attention, we begin to notice that, ah, oh, this isn't a static totality. It's a dynamic totality, and it's emergent. And I'm a part of that. I'm a participant in that emergence. I can dance with that. I can do reality surfing. I can ride with that. And then it gets creative, because what I'm bringing is the force of that life, uh, the life force into my creative expressions in the universe. So that's the third stage. It's more flow consciousness. So we've gone from reflective consciousness to oceanic consciousness to flow consciousness, creativity uh, expressing itself. And then that completes the uh, requirements for an integrated, more integral kind of consciousness. Now the second form of consciousness where one is in touch with 
consciousness as an, a coextensive with the universe, yeah. right? Isn't that where your argument that the universe is sentient and the evolution of human consciousness and the psi research all come together? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because it wasn't my consciousness. Right. It couldn't be my consciousness right. if, I, if it's four and a half miles right. away. Right. What is happening? So there? we yeah. we actually know that not only did they show this and publish it at Stanford Research Institute. Let's just take the simple case: remote viewing. Okay. They showed it. They published it. You can't dismiss it because right. the con there weren't two control groups. There's no way you can see a yeah. Soviet submarine 5,000 miles away right. without something going on, yeah. right? You can't just dismiss that as some fluke, right. some random. <laughs> it's not some freaky thing, no. you know? Something happens. So how does that happen? So that means that it's not just individual consciousness. There is this right. field somehow or something that people are tapping into. And if that is true, then there is a form of communication or feedback or sentience that is not just locally based, right? right? Exactly. And if that is true, then at least at that level, one can argue that that system is sentient. Exactly. Whether it's the universe or not, we can't say from that. But we can say that there is a sentient field of some kind going on between the guy at SRI and the, you know... Yeah. There's no boundary that we know of there's to no, the sentient field. Right, right. And so then one can go to the mystics and the wisdom traditions and say, you know what, this is what the great mystics and exactly. wisdom traditions have said. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if I look at this scientifically, I have to say, what are the range of hypotheses about this, you know, uh, about this data... Right, and it sounds like uh, the wisdom traditions offer, from sort of an Occam's razor point of view, the simplest explanation of how this works, and experiential as well. So right. the you know each one of those creators of those great uh, wisdom traditions had this deep experience of a regenerative universe, of a co-arising universe. And we sit here and it looks very quiet, looks very static, and yet, uh, if, if the, once again, if the pace of our attention matches the pace of manifestation, and that's one of the capacities we seldom think that we have. We actually have the capacity for our attention to be as precise as the universe is emerging. And that's what each one of the world's wisdom traditions has found. We can, we can do it. We are, we are, we're born with that capacity for attention, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, so we're born to learn that we are that already. Mm -hmm. Speaking of being born, you were born on a farm in Idaho, is that right? In a, f yeah. a farm in Idaho, yeah. Farm so how did you become Dwayne Algen? Who, what's the life story behind The life story. Uh, that's, you know, it's a checkered past. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I share that with you and it's checkered right up into the present for me. So. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah. Well, I was going to be a doctor mm -hmm. and um, and uh, growing up on a farm, I was, you know, I spent a lot of time alone. I had a lot of time to just look at life 
at animals, at nature, and just to feel into the aliveness that's there. Just naturally. And I think indigenous cultures, people that grow up with the land, just it's just there, and that, that's how I grew up. Um, and then my mother was a nurse, I wanted to be a doctor, and, um, and so that healing impulse is what then has carried me uh, through my whole life, actually. Um, and the work I've done on uh, social change, uh, for example, has been really out of that, uh, uh, an impulse for collective, awakening collective consciousness and a capacity for cultural healing. Um, we need to be awake collectively, we need to find so many areas of reconciliation and healing, so, mm. yeah. So that's the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you also happen at a more parochial level to share the experience with me that we're based in the Bay Area, but we spend time up on a little island off Seattle called Whidbey Island. And um, you work with uh, Linnea Lombard, who yes. created the Great Transition Stories, the New Stories uh, work. And right. You're a co-creator, in fact. Yes. She, uh, she really, I think, says that You've been a seminal influence in that whole wonderful body of work that she and Rick and Grassi and others are doing up on Whitby. Um, I want to ask you a, a question, um, because since I've begun to kind of migrate back and forth between Bolinas and Whitby, I find that Whitby is kind of the equivalent of Bolinas in the Northwest, that, you know, West Marin is to San Francisco what South Whitby Island is to Seattle and Bolinas is to West Marin what Langley is to, uh, you know, uh, South Whidbey and so on. But uh, this is a strange question, but I find somehow that the consciousness that you are describing is somehow thicker in the Pacific Northwest than it is in the Bay Area, that it's more dense, that it's more palpable, that there are more people authentically trying to live that way. I mean, not that there aren't a lot in the Bay Area and West Marin and so on, but there's something to me about um, the quality of shared consciousness Mm. up in that part. And I'm just curious what your experience is. It's not a leading question. It's an actual curiosity. No, no, it's a leading question. See, I grew up in in the Northwest. Yeah, okay. Uh, I grew up in Idaho. So you're you're asking me, well, of course they're going to be more conscious. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think that is? Well, actually, uh, one factor, I think, is climate. Yeah, uh, you're more exposed to weather. You have a more feeling, more of a feeling for nature. Uh, around here, you, you you can kind of take it for granted. It's not mm-hmm. going to be uh, too hurtful to go out mm-hmm. any time of the year. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the Northwest, it might be raining. It might be snowing. Mm-hmm. It might be cold. It might be hot. Who knows? Uh, but climate, I think, is a factor. And I know that um, having grown up on a farm, having connection with nature, mm-hmm. is key to having a sense of mm-hmm. the universe as a living system. So if it's thicker up there, maybe mm-hmm. it's thicker because the weather and the climate and that is kind of thicker and kind of making mm-hmm. it feel more connected. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's open this up now to this gifted group of people who've shown up here. Uh, please say your name and keep the questions brief so that we can do a lot. Go ahead. Sure. This is just a short comment. My name is Debbie, and I grew up in the Northwest, too. Mm-hmm. And I think another reason is that um, 
the Indian culture hasn't died out as completely as it has. The native people are still more a presence, even if it's psychically. I think that's true. And, and also, nature has not been as tamed up there. It's related to not only the weather, but there's more of, of actual sort of deep nature um, still alive there. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Don. Um, well, do we know that other creatures do not have um, consciousness in the sense of self-reflection? Uh, everywhere we look, uh, I almost brought this research because uh, this is something I'm just fascinated with. And I'm, the last few years I've been looking uh, through science magazines for evidence in plants and animals uh, that they're conscious. And this goes down to single cell bacteria and how they behave in, in finding food and, and, and other social behavior. Um, it goes into the plant realm and how plants communicate with one another via chemicals. Uh, for example, if you go into the grocery store and you see a bunch of zucchinis laying out there, for up to a week, they are going to be going through circadian rhythms. And the internal biochemistry of those zucchinis is going to be changing in anticipation of, in, of pests. Because at different times of day, the pests will attack them. And they are still responding with circadian activity to their internal biochemistry, even though they're just sitting there in the supermarket. They're alive. They're alive. Well, I guess what I was, I mean, but I was the self-reflective yeah. part. Like, I yeah. know I'm alive, as you were talking about before. Oh, see, that's the third miracle. Not only are you alive, but you know that you know. See, the first miracle is that anything's here at all. Second miracle is that living things exist, like a bacteria or whatever. Third miracle is that living things exist that know they exist. They have the capacity for reflective consciousness. Now, that doesn't mean that a plant without reflective consciousness isn't alive. It means that it is using it to self-organize itself, but it is not necessarily reflecting upon itself in the, in the manner that we would. It does have some degree of reflection if, it is going to re, if it's going to alert other plants of danger, which they do. Um, so there has to be some kind of reflective process. Say, you know, I'm in danger. I better let other plants know as well. That happens. That's measurable. Um, I don't know what you'd call that. It seems like that's consciousness to me. Um, well, it could be a wired response. Well, when you say a wired response, that doesn't tell me anything. It's just a word, wired. I want to know what the response yeah. process is where a tree over there, there's no wire. A tree over there um, is responding to biochemistry of a tree over here, but this tree had to know to alert other plants as to danger because it was being attacked. Alert, alert, danger. So they then crank out biochemicals that really protect them against the attacking insects of this one tree. Dale. Yeah, I'm not sure how brief I can keep this question. I have to kind of move it away towards it. Uh, one of the things that makes conventional religion hard to accept is the, no the notion of a loving God. One looks at facts like the Holocaust and so forth right. and say, well, how can there be such a right. thing? Um, and having left that kind of religion a long time ago, uh, 
I, I feel like I have experienced what you call oceanic consciousness. Sometimes I have to say most vividly on, on LSD. Yeah. But but still, hints of it otherwise. Uh, but something that has puzzled me uh, is uh, in, in those experiences I've sensed something one one might call love. Yeah. As being presence in, in this consciousness that I was experiencing. And yet I can't put that together with what happens in the universe. Uh, can, do you have any sense that the oceanic universe has any kind of benevolence? Or, uh, sure. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, great question. So again and again, uh, when people have mystical experiences, uh, which is just an experience of the universe itself, they report back. Uh, not that this, there's this kind of gray machine-like hum. You say, no, it's alive. I felt the love uh, that underlies it all. That again and again, people are reporting back uh, feelings of safety, of aliveness, of being at home uh, in the universe, um, not a stranger anymore, and so on. Um, I, I do think, it, it, here's my sense, that there's this underlying generative ground, and it's deeply compassionate, and uh, as a parent, I have three sons, one of the most compassionate things you can do is just let a kid be himself. Just don't interfere. Don't get in the way. Let him do his own lessons. Let him learn his own life. Be there, though. Be there in love. Now, <clears throat> is the universe here in love? Yeah, I'd say, yeah. Every moment, the universe is here in love. And the universe is saying, every moment, you do it your way. You do it your way. It's freedom. From the quantum foundations up, it's freedom. And you can make it as much pain, as much pleasure, and anything between that you want. It's up to you, because this is a place to learn. Sometimes you learn through pain, sometimes through pleasure, but it's learning. And you're founded, grounded, though, in love. And uh, when you die, you die not into deadness, but into life. You die into a living system. And you die into a living system that loves you. And a living system loves you that says, well, however you did it, you know, you did it your way. And you learned your life. But when you die into, you have a lovely line um, about how dying into the living system is not automatic if you don't find it while you're here, right? Well, yes. If, if we have not discovered ourselves while we're here. Right. Then when the body goes, we're going to say, where am I? Where am I? I, I? Well, you're a body of light, love, music, and knowing. Do you feel the music of yourself? Because every person that meets you feels the music of your being. Do you feel the love that you're actually caring to people because other people get it? Uh, do you feel the light in your eyes that other people see? Do you, you know that you're giving that light because other people see that light? So are beings of light, love, music, and knowing, are we getting it? Are we developing that? Are we cultivating that while we're here? So it's the quote, is it from uh, the Gospel of Thomas again? There's a quote that you use, about a beautiful quote, about if, if you don't discover it now, you'll just have a room in the city of in the, the dead. In the city of death, Rumi, yeah. yes. Yeah. 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 Is that from the Gospel of Thomas? No, it's Rumi. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's Rumi, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So if we, if we don't discover it now, yeah. we just have a room in the city in of death. In the city of death. Yeah. The, yeah, so it's apartment. not automatic no. that, that we are born into the light. No. 
oh, yeah. it's not automatic. And, oh, we're yeah. here in freedom, and we either find ourselves right. or not. Right. And the universe says, uh, you know, you don't want to find yourself. No problem. Right. Take a billion years right. to do it if you want. Right. I don't care. Uh, it's free. Right. Um, and you want to create suffering? Create as much suffering as you want, if that's right. what it's going to take to discover yourself. And I right. think that's what we're doing now. We're creating a world of great suffering, and it's feeding back on us, and we're going to find ourselves in that process, right. just like adolescents do. Go through the fire of initiation when you're an adolescent. So let me follow up on that, because we're talking now about the soul as something that continues. And you have this very powerful discussion of uh, the size of our soul. Say a little about that. Yeah, well, um, go back to the work in, in parapsychology, and if the body is simply a biodegradable vehicle for acquiring these soul-growing experiences, well, then, what we're, we're contained within this body, but just like in the parapsychology experiments, uh, I could reach out miles uh, away from my body, and I was still present and interacting and participating and so on. So I would say uh, the, uh, our soul is boundless, basically. It's boundless. Um, and we are beings uh, of boundless dimension. Um, but we have to pull ourselves together and know ourselves, make friends with ourselves, so that when we die, and we die into a place of aliveness, we know that we're there. We say, ah, there's Dwayne. I feel, I feel the light, the love, the music, the knowing. Yes, that's familiar to me. I have sat in meditation so many times. I have felt this being. I know this being. Forget his name. It used to be something, but uh, I remember the resonance. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I see. We die into aliveness, and we die into the aliveness that we have created as we've been alive. And the soul is boundless. And the soul is boundless. And you also have a beautiful description of how we often think of ourselves even physically as small, but in fact we are giants because we are halfway between the largest phenomena in the universe and the smallest. In fact, there's, according to you, there's more in the world within us than there is in the world outside yep. of us. So they're actually, in the scope of the universe, right. we are uh, large. We're giants. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Uh, and that relates to the greatness of the soul in some yep. interesting way. In, indeed it does. I, I just want to reemphasize that, that if we had a ruler that went from the very largest scale of the universe mm-hmm. uh, with, with billions of galaxies, and that ruler then went down to the very smallest scale of the known universe, uh, way smaller than an atom, but it's still known, and he said, okay, now where would we put humans on that ruler? We'd put humans not at the bottom, but about a little more than halfway up that ruler. That's so cool. And we, in, in the cosmic scale of things, are literally giants. We're literally giants. And then you say, well, what does a giant do? Well, a giant overlooks things that are really small. And uh, if you look down at the really small scale, there's a lot happening. That's where the universe is getting regenerated. And, but we're up here as giants, and we just don't see what's happening here at the really small scale of a regenerative, uh, co-arising universe. Yes. Well, I've got so many responses at so many levels here, I don't know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> right there. I think rather than to see it as, or 
you know, another way to see it than a linear is that, you know, the infinity symbol that we're right at the point where the where the inner and the outer, we, we're at the junction point right there. So, I like that goes, you know, on that. And, and I love your, man, I think you're the first person I've ever heard to say it almost exactly as I say it. Uh, and for so long, the bio, the bio verse rather than the universe or the multiverses. Yeah. And the black hole on one side is, and you said, oh, a white, white hole on the other sun, side. A sun. Yeah. A sun in another universe. Well, another universe. <laughs> I mean, in, in a, in, huh? in a uh, mm -hmm. symbiotic universe. So, because energy, I, I don't like this explanation that a black hole is something that, that energy is sucked into and stops. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't work that way. It goes, I mean, so we've got black holes. They've discovered them. They're going somewhere. It's this tremendous, you know, you know, <laughs> amount of energy going somewhere into a tunnel. And then we've got suns visible everywhere. There's an unfathomable um, source of energy that keeps being fed through the sun. So that just rather makes sense to me that, like the yin-yang symbol, it's, it's feeding itself, you know, back and forth, the energy is... Uh... This is the beauty of Bolinas, where you're a community of speculative cosmologists. Indeed. Yeah. So, there was a question back... <laughs> yes, please. Um, back to the question that you asked earlier, where does free will, do we have free will, and where does that fit into your theory of the living? Yeah. So I would say absolutely we have free will because uh, if there's freedom at the foundations of the universe, uh, and that's certainly, it's a probabilistic universe, not a deterministic one. I mean, that is clear from the physics. So if there is freedom at the foundations, then it means whatever arises out of that uh, has some major freedom. It doesn't mean complete freedom necessarily, because each one of us has different causes and conditions for being who, the, who we are. Genetically, physically, our family history, all the rest. I'm not saying that there's uh, complete freedom, but uh, I am saying that this is not a mechanistic, deterministic universe where uh, we don't have choice. I'm saying uh, we can actually extract ourselves from this biodegradable vehicle we call a body and have a greater degree of consciousness about who we are and what we uh, want to, how we want to present ourselves. Uh, we can choose the, the, the light that we bring to the world, the love that we bring to the world, the knowing, and so on. We can choose that. Um, yeah. You have a beautiful line here where you say, a grand adventure welcomes the awakening soul, a path of great compassion and great discovery. And you talk about a garden for growing life and two remarkable dynamics at work. What are the two remarkable dynamics in the garden from growing life? Golly, I don't know. What are they? <laughs> well, one is the universe story, and the other you call the Great Awakening. Oh. Uh, in other words, the reason I bring this yes. up okay, is then, that yes. the universe story and the Great Awakening are two concepts that are around in yeah. our time. I know. But you, you give them seminal importance for the awakening soul. Right. So let's look at this. Um, I was being playful, but... Um, 
I'm a great straight man. So, <laughs> so there are two views uh, of what's going on right now. Uh, one view is called the universe story, and it says there's a past, present, and future. And uh, about 13.7 billion years ago, the universe emerged, and it's been evolving uh, ever since. And it's more of a linear, horizontal sense of, of evolution. And evolution means unrolling, unfolding. And so we have this image now of uh, the universe unrolling, unfolding, growing through time. And we put ourselves in that flatland of uh, unfolding evolution. I mean, that we just think of ourselves that way. Now, uh, along comes another point of view. And it says, uh, Thomas Berry and, and others are saying, um, and the world's wisdom traditions are saying, you know, it isn't going from here to there. It's actually transforming in place, transforming in place. And uh, the whole thing is emergent at every moment. The entire universe is arising, is emerging, is manifesting. I don't care what word we use. Uh, it's continuous creation uh, at every moment. Um, and so at every moment is a fresh start, basically. Uh, in freedom, at every moment, there's a new creation and a fresh start. So um, it is a universe of extraordinary freshness and uh, freedom, I feel, of um, freedom of choice. So just to underscore this, because you say it so beautifully, where the universe story provides a stunning narrative of the horizontal unfolding across time, awakening to a living universe adds the further dimension, the vertical creation of the cosmos and time. The universe story focuses on the evolution of the universe through time, and the living universe focuses on the universe being created in time. In time. So, um, and really, I don't think anybody else has put those two together quite the way no. you have. I no. think that's a significant part of your contribution. Uh, to this field. There are people that kind of touch on that. Like, right. to, like let's say, Brian Swim. Yeah. You know of his work on the yeah, universe sure. story. He's yeah. a dear brother. Yeah. And uh, he wrote at one point, the universe emerges out of an all-nourishing abyss at every moment. That's a quote. Mm -hmm. It emerges out of an all-nourishing abyss at every moment. Mm -hmm. So I say to Brian, Mm -hmm. Golly, this sounds like a living universe to me. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a regenerative system to me. Why don't you speak not about the universe simply unfolding over billions of years, but emerging moment by moment by moment out of this all-nourishing abyss? Mm -hmm. He says, no, I can't go there. I, I just can't talk that. You know, the people wouldn't get it. They wouldn't understand it. So uh, I am going there. Uh, yeah. I am talking about sure? it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I love this... Uh your hand gestures say yeah. okay. <laughs> do you have any I have two questions do you have any other images that can go with so we can get it more fully yes and then uh, talk a little bit more about our play and our participation and how we catch that yeah how we catch you know besides meditation how do we catch that oh man where is there 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 it is see the, the, one of the key things I've been trying to do is to understand what is the universe up to and um, 
there's, there, I'll pass the book around, uh, but there's a page here that says, uh, at every level of the universe, universe whether it's uh, a cross-section of an orange, a magnetic field around a human being, the, uh, the magnetic field around the Earth, the, uh, what it looks like uh, in a tornado, there's a structure that emerges again and again and again at every scale of the universe. And it's the simplest geometry of a self-organizing system. So if you say, what's the universe doing? Well, just look. Just look at the architecture, and that will tell you. It's creating self-organizing systems at every, uh, at every scale. So there you could, you could um, either get an e-book or a copy. Watch. Yeah, yeah. Give and, us and a just page look. number there. Page yeah. number, Julius. What's the page? Uh, one. Here. <laughs> right. one. Uh, 120, I think. 120? Yeah. So you have, a, a, yes, 121, exactly. The torus found throughout nature. And you show the Earth's magnetic fields, air currents in a tornado, the magnetic fields around a person, the curvature of space around a black hole, cross-section of an orange, and the magnetic field around a spiral galaxy. Pretty good list. You have a, a wonderful chart on page 3031 contrasting a dead and a living universe. So just dead. The universe is non-living in its foundation, a collection of mostly dead matter, living. The universe is alive at its foundation, a unique kind of living entity. Uh, dead. The cosmos has no apparent purpose, so any meaning comes from what we construct. Living. The cosmos is a purposeful learning system. Uh, consciousness is a byproduct of biochemistry in the dead universe. Consciousness is a living field of life energy that permeates the cosmos in the living universe. In the dead one, we live in a physical universe. The only potential we can cultivate are materially based, physical, emotional, and medical, mental. We, and then, uh, uh, because we live in a living universe, our highest potentials are to, are to become homo sapiens sapiens, who recognize ourselves as bodies of light, love, and music. So you go down, I won't do the whole thing, but a list of about 15 different categories. So to me, uh, Dwayne, this is powerful stuff. And, um, and one final point occurs to me is the way science is organized now Anybody who proposes that the universe is alive, the burden of proof is on them. Absolutely. And from my point of view, that is a misuse of a very useful scientific tool, which is the null hypothesis, because in statistics and science, it's very useful to assume for analytical reasons that if you can't demonstrate that something is going on, then you assume that nothing is going on. It's a useful scientific tool. But... Who should the burden of proof be on about the universe being alive or dead? Yo. Why should we assume a priori that the presumption is that the universe is dead unless it can be demonstrated to be alive? Maybe a different way of looking at it is that given that all the, the wisdom traditions have done this, given a body of evidence like this, which is, if not definitive, at least highly suggestive, maybe the burden of proof should be reversed. Maybe the burden of proof should be on the people who assume that the universe is dead. Indeed. I, I, I think that uh, reversal uh, is in process, and uh, leading the way is science, mm -hmm. which is remarkable. 
that science has become so powerful that, for example, science uh, said, well, the universe must be a static structure. We put the Hubble telescope out there and such, we find it's an evolving structure. Einstein uh, uh, and others said, well, they said uh, all the universe is, is the matter that we see. And now we see that it's 96% uh, of the universe is not that. So uh, this is an extraordinary time of... Um, I think discovery uh, that we're in and what we're discovering is uh, really an ancient insight that I, Plato and or Plotinus, that, that it is a single living creature and we're trying to learn how to live uh, within it. And, and that is a heroic journey for the whole human family uh, to discover right now. Dwayne Elgin, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Yeah.